the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing Dave King Engineering, and we're glad to have you with us. Uh, coming up in our second hour, John Ferguson, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. We'll also talk about Earth Day as it's understood by some who... Uh, Mark the occasion. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, Senate Joint Resolution 33 was just introduced this past week and is already slated to have a public hearing on Tuesday. That's tomorrow. Can you make it to the Capitol? That's what Oregon Right to Life is asking. They need to uh, testify to the dangers of this reckless legislation. So what is it all about? Well, Senate Joint Resolution 33 attempts to amend the Oregon state constitution to include abortion as a constitutional right in the state of Oregon. That would enshrine state-funded abortion for any reason up to the moment of birth in our state constitution. Now, this is already the policy of Oregon, even though only a third of Oregonians support it. But Senate Joint Resolution 33 is a blatant move to scratch the backs of pro-abortion legislators, cronies, and to establish this in constitutional law. Uh, Oregon Right to Life suggests that we need to shout opposition to the legislation, and the best way to do that is to show up and speak out. You can find out more about that on their website, OregonRightToLife.org. But they are uh, going to be uh, holding a hearing tomorrow, hearing room C at the Oregon State Capitol at 3 p.m. Uh, there's going to be staff there and others who will be testifying. So if you're concerned about the uh, Constitution in the state of Oregon being amended to grant abortion up to the moment of birth. You might want to submit your testimony. Well, Don Lemon said Monday he was stunned to learn that he's been fired from CNN. I was informed this morning by my agent that I have been terminated by CNN. Now, this isn't much of a surprise to others who wondered how he had stayed on so long. But he went on to say, I'm stunned. After 17 years at CNN, I would have thought that someone in management would have had the decency to tell me directly. At no time was I ever given any indication that I would not be able to continue to do the work I have loved at the network. End quote. Well, CNN refuted Lemon's account in a statement on Twitter, saying Don Lemon's statement about this morning's events is inaccurate. He was offered an opportunity to meet with management, but instead released a statement on Twitter. CNN CEO Chris Licht, he confirmed Lemon's exit in a statement, saying Don will forever be a part of the CNN family, and we thank him for his contributions over the past 17 years. We wish him well, and we will be cheering him on in his uh, future endeavors. Well, Licht added that CNN is committed to the success of CNN This Morning, which Lemon had co-anchored with Caitlin Collins and Poppy Harlow for the past six months after he lost his coveted prime time spot. There had reportedly been tension between Lemon and the two female co-workers on the show for months. The New York Post reported in December that he previously loudly confronted Collins in front of other staff, telling her she was interrupting him too often on the air. His ouster comes weeks after a variety expose claimed the anchor had a history of threatening his female colleagues 
and making provocative and erratic comments. Meanwhile, on the other end of the uh, cable news spectrum, Fox News' top performing host Tucker Carlson is leaving the network after appearing in the primetime slot since November of 2016. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have agreed to part ways. We thank him for his service to the network as a host, and prior to that as a contributor, the company wrote in a statement. Well, the sudden departure didn't leave Carlson time to host a final segment, a final episode of his widely um, successful program, the Tucker Carlson Tonight program. His last episode was broadcast on Friday. The 21st, the network said, an interim show featuring a rotating cast of Fox News personalities will fill the 8 p.m. hour until a new host is named. On Friday, the day of his last regularly scheduled show, Carlson delivered the keynote speech for the Heritage Foundation's 50th anniversary gala. The anchor um, touched on many themes, namely the moral decay plaguing American society and the unprecedented weaponization of the U.S. government against political opponents. While the reason for Carlson's departure from Fox is unknown, many conservatives have observed that his on-air coverage often appeared to be at odds with the headquarters and other media divisions within the firm. For example, there have been long-standing tensions between Carlson and 26-year Fox veteran and network CEO Suzanne Scott, uh, Mediate uh, reported. However, Carlson's show continually landed at the top of the charts, raking in viewers. Carlson came under fire in the last few years for questioning the popular mainstream media portrayal of the January 6th and suggesting that federal agents may have even orchestrated the day's events. In March, he played footage of the day provided to him by Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, which, uh, uh, which showed on the um, which he showed on the news side of the network. Uh, stayed amid uh, Dominion's defamation case against Fox, in which the voting machine company sought $1.6 billion in damages received and agreed to much less than that. Dominion had accused Fox and uh, news staffers and guests of defaming the company with false allegations. Well, given the massive bill Fox was ordered to pay Dominion, some observers have speculated that the network would try to tone down its on-air personalities to avoid future legal troubles Last week, now former Fox host Dan Bongino also parted ways with the network after a Smartmatic, another voting technology company, sued Fox for $2.7 billion in damages in February of 21. Former host uh, Lou Dobbs was let go. Dobbs offered the most uh, uh, comments cited as defamatory false claims on uh, fact in the judge's ruling in the case. So another one, uh, another major Cable news host will not be returning. Also, another Anheuser-Busch marketing executive has taken a leave of absence with a backlash over Bud Light's creative collaboration with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Daniel Blake, who oversees marketing for the companies, the mainstream brands, has stepped away from the job, according to the Wall Street Journal. Blake joins Bud Light vice president of marketing, Alyssa Heinerscheid, who um, generated backlash for deriding Bud Light's traditional customers base in a podcast uh, interview that was uh, resurfaced, uh, that has resurfaced amid the Mulvaney controversy. Given the circumstances, Alyssa has decided to take a leave of absence, which we support. The AB spokeswoman told the publication Daniel has also decided to take a leave of absence. Whether or not that will uh, extend into a permanent leave remains to be seen. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show coming up in our second hour. Bless five everyday ways to love your neighbor and change the world. Well, the Department of Justice officials appeared to minimize the threat of uh, violence as they prepared for the night of rage, the night that Roe versus Wade was overturned, according to an email obtained by the Heritage Foundation's Oversight Project. Well, the email shows James Dunlop, he's the former director of security and emergency preparing staff at the Department of Justice, updating personnel on the night of rage pushed by the militant abortion group Jane's Revenge, a group that has taken responsibility for a slew of violent attacks on pro-life groups and pregnancy resource centers. This is to advise personnel that law enforcement continues to monitor protest and counter protest activity t- taking place as a result of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the email said, referring to the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization decision issued on the 24th of June of last year. Some groups being monitored have declared a night of rage and are linked to incidents involving arson and vandalism that have occurred in many regions, including the D.C. metro area over the last few weeks. The email continued before emphasizing that there is no direct threat to any Department of Justice facilities and protest activity continues to focus around the area surrounding the Supreme Court. Employees should remain vigilant. Notably, Dunlap's email doesn't mention Jane's revenge by name, nor does it mention that the groups uh, perpetuating arson and vandalism are pro-abortion groups, despite the fact that lawmakers have called upon the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security to designate members of Jane's revenge as terrorists. And despite even the White House's condemnation of their threat of violence, we've demonstrated in the past month how easy and fun it is to attack. James Revenge promised in a communique, a missive in mid-June last year. We are versatile, we are mercurial, and we answer to no one but ourselves. We promise to take increasingly drastic measures against oppressive infrastructures. Rest assured that we will, and those measures may not come uh, come in the form of something so easily cleaned up as a fire or graffiti. It's open season, the militant group promised pro-lifers, and we know where your operations are, end quote. And only the week before the uh, Jane's Revenge missive, authorities arrested 26-year-old Nichols John Rosk of Simi, Simi Valley, California, near Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home after he allegedly said he wanted to kill the justice. The email doesn't mention Rosk, Kavanaugh, or the incident. The email also does not mention that the acts of arson and vandalism it references are pro-abortion-motivated crimes perpetuated against pro-life groups and facilities, including Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center, located about a half a mile from the Supreme Court itself. Dunlap merely refers, uh, merely refers to some groups without identifying what their motivations are. It's become increasingly obvious that the Biden administration stands in full support of these illegal intimidation tactics. That's what Mike Howell, director of the Heritage Foundation's Oversight Project, told the Daily Signal in a recent interview. The fact that they knew of the violent history of these groups of degenerates and did nothing uh, to uh, did nothing is more than an, an abdication of their duty. It's joining in their cause. The email obtained by oversight was forwarded by Teresa Watson on the 24th of June and 22, the, the day that Roe was overturned, to a number of Department of Justice staff, including Attorney General Merrick Garland's counsel, Julie Dickerson, and Deputy Assistant Attorney General Maggie Goodlander. As of 23, Dunlap serves as the Department of Justice 
Acting Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Human Resources. Also, in response to oversights, um, a request for communications, um, the oversight project received from the U.S. Attorney's Office for D.C. Only four pages of records related to the Supreme Court and section of the law dated to June 23rd and 24th of 23 were noted. This is significant, according to counsel for the oversight project, because the D.C. Attorney General's Office or U.S. Attorney's Office is claiming to have no such records, even while the Department of Justice staff reported that they were monitoring groups linked to arson and vandalism in relation to the so-called Night of Rage. Under standard procedure, those incidents and the unnamed groups should have been promptly investigated, Dewey noted. There should be some record of at least investigative activities associated with these records. If there is not, the U.S. attorney for D.C. was not doing his job. And that is precisely what is now being alleged. Um, There have been at least 84 attacks on pregnancy centers, 147 attacks on Catholic churches that have been very outspoken with regard to their pro-life convictions since May of 22. Uh, The leak of the draft opinion indicating that Roe versus Wade would soon be overturned. Well, come 2032, if President Biden has his way, most Americans who want new cars may have to buy electric vehicles. While the administration insists that such a mandate will reduce climate change, and the, the fact is, when adding up the emissions required to produce and power the batteries of electric vehicles, EVs can create more carbon emissions than gas-powered cars. New proposal uh, proposed regulations rather on automobile emissions from the Environmental Protection Agency would require 60 percent of new car sales to be battery powered electric vehicles by 2030 and 67 percent by 2032, compared to fewer than 6 percent in 2022. The stated rationale, these cars produce fewer carbon emissions than cars with internal combustion engines. Emissions contribute to global warming and global warming poses a threat to the planet and mankind. What the regulations don't seem to take into account is the is that electric cars don't have tailpipe emissions, but their batteries are charged using electricity and much of electricity production, unless it's from renewables, hydropower or nuclear energy, still results in carbon emissions. Battery powered electric vehicles might sound attractive when gasoline is over three dollars per gallon and electric Ford F-150 lightning pickup trucks may be fun to drive, especially if you don't need to tow anything. But these new purchases might not be reducing greenhouse gas emissions and saving the planet. A 2022 paper by Kelly Cynical of Convergent Science and other scientists compares greenhouse gas emissions from plug-ins, uh, battery-powered electric vehicles with emissions from hybrid vehicles, which combine um, internal combustion engines with smaller battery packs. The conclusion, pure plug-in battery-powered vehicles can create more emissions than hybrids and even more than some traditional internal combustion engine vehicles, whose fuel delivery, air delivery, and ignition systems have improved over the past 20 years, increasing overall vehicle gas mileage. And they published the reason why. Research shows that electricity for battery-powered vehicles is coming from coal and natural gas rather than renewables. To minimize emissions and cost, electricity grids uh, tend to use clean sources such as nuclear, solar, and wind as much as possible. But demand often exceeds what these sources can provide. And when these renewables aren't sufficient, additional sources of energy come from fossil fuels and hydropower. 
The added demand for electricity resulting from the rapid adoption of more vehicles, electric vehicles under the new regulations could move us even further away from the point where demand can be met by low emission sources. If battery powered vehicles were able to be changed with the emissions free energy or charged, uh, then emissions from transportation could perhaps be reduced. But until emissions fuel uh, free fuels are plentiful enough and reliable enough to meet demand and have a net environmental benefit, battery powered vehicles will still rely on fossil fuels and will not reduce emissions. Seventy percent of the world's electric batteries are produced in China and 83 percent of China's energy comes from fossil fuels, according to the U.S. Energy uh, Information Administration. The longer the range of the battery, the more carbon is used in the production process. Cynical has calculated that carbon emissions to produce batteries for a Nissan Leaf, for example, were equivalent to driving a gasoline-powered BMW 320D for 24,000 miles. For a larger Tesla Model S battery, carbon emissions used in production are equivalent to driving the BMW 302D for 60,000 miles. In addition, transporting batteries from China to the United States uses additional emissions, but the magnitude is more difficult to calculate. Well, those concerned about greenhouse gas emissions may also be worried about the negative effects on the environment of mining for batteries components. Such mining, which itself creates emissions, disrupts the land in low-income countries such as cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where abuses of mine workers and significant pollution from mining have been documented by Amnesty International. Lithium is another crucial component of batteries, and China, Chile, Argentina, and Australia are home to potentially damaging lithium mines, according to the Institute for Energy Research. Well, the stark conclusion of all of this is until electricity can be generated by emissions-free power, battery-powered vehicles will generally increase rather than reduce emissions. The EPA's new rules to put more EVs on the road will make uh, travel more inconvenient and costly for drivers without reducing emissions. Something to think about. In other news, homelessness and drug addiction soared in California after safety initiative Uh, The uh, sheriff there says a California sheriff said legislation touted as creating safer neighborhoods and schools is to blame for the the, uh, state's soaring addiction and homeless rates. When we stopped enforcing drug rules and laws, Riverside County Sheriff Chad Bianco says we started seeing a major increase in what we see now as the severe mental health problems of people that are living on the street. Bianco said a large portion of California's homeless population is suffering from severe drug addiction which has made many individuals unpredictable and potentially dangerous. They're whacked out and sometimes they're uncontrollable. He said, you never know what to or rather how to act or react around them because it's uncertain what they're going to do. The problem stems from Proposition 47 approved by voters nearly a decade ago. Bianco, the sheriff, argued. Meanwhile, ExxonMobil is unleashing affordable energy with the biggest refinery expansion in 10 years. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break. Also coming up in our second hour, John Ferguson, author of Bless. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Show. Georgine Rice Show. Representative Don Beyer, a Democrat from Virginia, woke up early last Thursday morning to study But it wasn't a piece of legislation that was commanding his attention. It was coursework that he's learning along the way to um, earning a graduate degree in machine learning at George Mason University. I still have two or three more undergraduate courses, the 72-year-old lawmaker 
told Fox News Digital in an interview, so I should be able to start the graduate courses by next fall, the fall of 2024. Most of his time is taken up representing the 8th Congressional District of Virginia as a senior Democrat on the Joint Economic Committee and the Ways and Means Committee. But he's making time to take classes alongside younger students in pursuit of a degree that will let him better understand one of the fastest developing technologies in human history, AI. All of this while serving in Congress. You got to admire a guy like that. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defended her reintroduction of the Green New Deal on Sunday, admitting the bill was massive, but saying the threat of climate change is even greater. Ocasio-Cortez made the comment during a Sunday interview with MSNBC host Jen Psaki. The uh, divisive lawmaker introduced her Green New Deal for the second time this uh, last week, arguing that it's time to aggressively transform the American workforce. It would certainly do that, but not in the ways I think most people would find necessarily favorable. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took a swipe at former President Donald Trump over Dr. Anthony Fauci's role during the COVID-19 pandemic while delivering a keynote speech at a Republican event. And thus, the presidential election on the Republican side has begun, even though the Florida governor has not yet announced. The Wall Street Journal editorial board argued President Joe Biden is too old to run for re-election Friday amid reports he's likely to announce his 2024 bid Tomorrow, the public understands what Mr. Biden apparently won't admit that electing an octogenarian is obvious decline or rather in obvious decline for another four years could be an historic mistake. The editors wrote the editors continued asking the country to elect a man who is 80 years old and whose second term would end when he is 86 is a risky act that borders on selfish. President Biden's poll numbers reveal the majority of Democrats don't want him to run in 2023. The president struggles in the polls. uh, uh, They're not shocking news. He's been drowning since day one of his presidency and liberal news outlets are being forced to admit it. NBC host Chuck Todd revealed shocking low poll numbers for the president, reportedly seeking a second term. Fifty three percent of voters who supported Biden in 2020 say that the president shouldn't run again. Seventy six percent of voters under 35 believe the president should not run in 24, while only 41 percent of Americans think the 80 year old should let new leadership take over. An NBC poll among Democrats, 53 percent of 2022 Biden uh, voters say that he shouldn't run 64 percent of uh, Democrats who voted for Sanders or Warren in 2020 think he shouldn't run. Seventy six percent of voters under 35 agree. ISIS is rallying in Afghanistan to grow the terrorist organization. Islamic State terrorists are using Afghanistan as a base for aspirational plotting against America and European targets in the wake of the president's disastrous military withdrawal, according to a secret Pentagon assessment allegedly leaked by Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Texera. Less than two years after the president withdrew U.S. personnel from Afghanistan, the country has become a significant coordination site for the Islamic State as the terrorist group plans attacks across Europe and Asia and conducts aspirational plotting against the United States, according to a classified Pentagon assessment. It portrays the threat as a growing security concern. Governor uh, Gavin Newsom out of California has announced that he will finally take action against the state's deadly fentanyl crisis by deploying the National Guard to assist in the policing and cleanup of Democrat-run San Francisco. 
The governor is collaborating with the California Highway Patrol, California National Guard, San Francisco Police Department, and the San Francisco District Attorney's Office to put a stop to the crisis that is plaguing the city, which has been overrun by homeless. The city's fentanyl crisis spiked during the COVID-19 pandemic with 625 accidental drug overdose deaths in 21. In 23, there are 200 thus far. The release from the governor's office stresses that the partnership will not seek to criminalize those struggling with substance use and instead focus on holding drug suppliers and traffickers accountable. The U.S. military on Saturday evacuated the embassy staff and their families from Sudan Amid escalating conflict in the country, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, he said that operations at the U.S. Embassy in the city of Khartoum would be paused and that U.S. personnel have been cleared from the area. President Biden noted that he issued the orders to remove the personnel and that his team was notifying him on the continual basis of the safety efforts for Americans in the war-torn nation. He urged an immediate and unconditional ceasefire between the battling Sudanese army and paramilitary groups wreaking havoc. The State Department shared Friday that at least one American had been killed in Sudan since the fighting broke out. In a late-night briefing, Ambassador John Bass painted an even more dire picture for Americans now left to fend for themselves in Sudan's uncertain environment, where there is now an absence of any commercial air, the absence of any charter aircraft capabilities, and the absence of really feasible overland road routes to get out of the country. Canadian health officials said on Friday Americans could access an abortion drug up north if a ban was upheld in the United States. In an April 7th decision, Judge Matthew Kazmarak of the Northern District of Texas ruled in favor of Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative Christian legal advocacy group, and reversed the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's approval of Mifepristone. Felipe Andre Langelos, the press secretary of Canada's family minister, Karina Gould, said non-Canadians, including Americans, were welcome to obtain an abortion in Canada. Last year, before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Gould said that Americans would be able to get an abortion in Canada, which is typically less regulated than it is in the U.S. and available at later stages of pregnancy. God help America. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg and U.S. Representative Jim Jordan on Friday agreed to an arraignment in which a former Trump prosecutor will testify before a House committee ending litigation over the matter. Under the settlement, the the, uh, deposition of former prosecutor Mark Pomerantz, who worked on the probe of Donald Trump for Mr. Bragg's prosecutor, Cyrus Vance Jr., will go forward on May the 12th. Uh, Pomerantz will be questioned by the committee alongside legal counsel from the DA's office. The U.S. dollar has been in quick decline over the past several months, one of several indicators raising fears that the economy could be headed for a recession. Since a recent peak in early November, the greenback has fallen by 7.4 percent, according to the nominal board U.S. dollar index. The falling dollar comes after a year-long period of Federal Reserve hiking interest rates in response to the country's rip-roaring inflation. To put the current situation into perspective, the dollar surge in value during the height of the uh, Fed's tightening so uh, is, um, in a way, falling back to earth from the highs notched last year. Meanwhile, there are signs that the U.S. business cycle may be turning negative. Jobless claims, a proxy for layoffs have been trending up, a sign the rate hikes are beginning to corrode the red-hot labor market. Bed Bath & Beyond has filed bankruptcy. Rats, there are some things I still needed. 
On Sunday, they filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. The beleaguered home goods retailer has been warming, uh, warning of a potential bankruptcy since early January when it issued a good concern notice that it may not have the cash to cover expenses after a dismal holiday season. Shares of the company closed at 29 cents Friday, giving it a market value of $136.9 million. The stock is down about 88% this year. Last April, it was trading around $20 a share. The company's 360 namesake store and 120 Bye Bye Baby locations will remain open for the time being as it begins to close the businesses and liquidate assets. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming in our second hour, a conversation with John Ferguson, author of Bless, and we'll take a look back at Earth Day that was last Saturday, what it means to some who not only celebrate but worship. That's all coming up in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The IRS whistleblower who alleges that there has been a cover-up in the investigation into Hunter Biden's potential tax crimes notes that Hunter has been getting preferential treatment from his father's administration thanks to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Well, the unnamed whistleblower's attorney, Mark Lytle, he claims to have information that could contradict sworn testimony to Congress by a senior political appointee. That senior political appointee in question is evidently Garland. Indeed, he's repeatedly given testimony before Congress that there will not be interference of any political or improper kind from the Justice Department in U.S. Attorney David Weiss's Hunter Biden investigation and that Weiss will have full authority to bring charges against the president's son if he so decides, according to the uh, IRS whistleblower. That is not the case. Whether or not that individual will be given whistleblower status and testify We'll keep you posted. Enough evidence is raising criminal charges against Hunter Biden is evidently there, but the Justice Department is yet to pull the trigger. The charges that Biden, uh, Hunter Biden, could or should face, uh, uh, should be facing several tax-related crimes as well as an illegal firearm purchase. NBC News reports that two senior law enforcement sources tell NBC News about growing frustration inside the FBI because investigators finished the bulk of their work on the case about a year ago. A senior law enforcement source said the IRS finished its investigation more than a year ago. In other words, the Department of Justice has had all the goods on Hunter for some time, but leadership, likely Attorney General Garland, has something has seemingly put the uh, kibosh on taking any action against the president's son. A total of six individuals have now been arrested in connection to a Sweet 16 birthday party shooting in Dadeville, Alabama, a little over a week ago that left four people dead and another 32 injured. A 19-year-old and a 15-year-old were taken into custody last Thursday. The police have yet to disclose a possible motive for the attack. Investigators have indicated that the crime scene is complex and that it will take some time to piece everything together. The U.S. House will vote on Republican debt limit bill this week. A GOP investigator suspects the Biden family dozen were part of an influence peddling scheme. Majorities don't want Biden or Trump to run in 2024, a matchup they don't want to see repeated. The New York Times jumped on the bandwagon, suggesting concerns about Biden's age are legitimate. The U.S. military evacuated U.S. embassy staff from Sudan amid the ongoing conflict. And the student government at Whitworth University denied a Republican group's request to invite Xi Van Fleet, a survivor of Maoist China, to speak on campus, citing her criticism of woke culture and her comparisons of the ideology to her experience under communist rule. 
comparisons that are unflattering. A student government at Whitworth University, a private Christian university in Spokane, voted 9-4 to to reject the Turning Point USA chapter's request to host Van Fleet during a meeting on April 12th, arguing that her positions, represented by her tweets critical of woke culture, could be deemed hurtful or offensive, campus reform reported. The Virginia mother who endured Mao Zedong's cultural revolution before immigrating to the United States has emerged as a spokesperson, an opponent of critical race theory, and frequently warns about similarities she sees between the woke revolution and her experience living under uh, Mao Zedong's Chinese cultural revolution, including the suppression of opposing viewpoints. They may have made her point. A top general admits transgender inclusion has hurt army recruiting, and Americans spent more on legal cannabis in 2022 than chocolate or beer. NBC Universal CEO Jeff Schell is out after admitting an inappropriate relationship. On this day in history, 1800, Congress approves a bill establishing the Library of Congress. 1877, federal troops are ordered out of New Orleans, ending the North's post-Civil War rule in the South. 1915, in what's considered the start of the American genocide, or excuse me, the Armenian genocide, the Ottoman Empire begins rounding up Armenian political and cultural leaders in Constantinople. 1916, some 1,600 Irish nationalists launched the Easter Rising by seizing several key sites in Dublin. The Rising would, would be put down by British forces five days later. 1967, Soviet cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov is killed when his Soyuz 1 spacecraft smashes into the Earth after his parachutes fail to deploy properly during a reentry. He was the first human spaceflight fatality. On this day in 1970, the People's Republic of China launches its first satellite, which keeps transmitting a song, The East is Red. 1980, the United States launches an unsuccessful attempt to free the American hostages in Iran, a mission that results in the deaths of eight U.S. servicemen. 1990, on this day, the space shuttle Discovery blasts off from Cape Canaveral, Florida, carrying the $1.5 billion Hubble Space Telescope. 1995, the final bomb linked to the Unabomber explodes inside the Sacramento, California offices of a lobbying group for the wood products industry, killing chief lobbyist Gilbert B. Murray. Theodore Kaczynski would later be sentenced to four lifetimes in prison for a series of bombings that killed three men and injured 29 others. 2003, U.S. forces in Iraq take custody of Tariq Aziz, the former Iraqi deputy prime minister. Also in 2003, on this day, China shuts down a Beijing hospital as the global death toll from SARS surpasses 260. 2009, Mexico shuts down schools, museums, libraries and state-run theaters across its overcrowded capital in hopes of containing a deadly swine flu outbreak. And finally, on this day, 2018, Former police officer Joseph D'Angelo is arrested at his home near Sacramento, California, after DNA links him to crimes attributed to the so-called Golden State Killer. Authorities believe he committed 13 murders and more than 50 rapes in the 1970s and 90s. Authorities are facing mounting pressure to unveil the Nashville school shooting uh, shooters manifesto to shed light on the motive behind the brutal massacre that left six people dead, including three children last month. The FBI has been accused of stalling its release after officials reportedly found 20 journals, five laptops 
and a suicide note, among other things, at the shooter's home. The suspect identified as trans and was a former student at the Covenant School before she carried out the deadly shooting last month. Senator Bill Haggerty, a Republican out of Tennessee, called it perplexing that officials have yet to release a motive or any of her writings nearly one month after the tragedy occurred. It's been very perplexing to all of us involved, he says. It seems that certain information is flooded into the marketplace immediately if it fits the narrative, so to speak. If the information does not fit the narrative, it seems to get suppressed. I don't know what's in the manifesto. I want to be sensitive to our law enforcement officers that are going through this, but it's certainly taking a long time to figure out whether and what information should be released. He went on to say, I think people do deserve to know what took place, what was in the mind of this sick person that committed these heinous murders. Representative Tim Burchett, a Republican out of Tennessee as well, expressed his disappointment to the New York Post, arguing the manifesto's release could answer a lot of questions and should be released to the lawmakers and families affected by the shooting. Metro Nashville Council member Courtney Johnston also told the Post the manifesto, which officials have already claimed would not be released entirely, is a blueprint on total destruction. That document in the wrong person's hands would be astronomically dangerous. Well, I'm not sure that's the case. And in the right hands, uh, and at least elements to the public, certainly should be uh, released. Gary Bauer writes, Almost every morning when I wake up, I'm reminded of the six Christians who were gunned down at a Christian school in Nashville. That story certainly disappeared quickly, didn't it? Fortunately, the shooter was taken down by brave police officers. Once again, good guys with guns stopped the bad guy with a gun. But we really don't know much about her, except that she was a woman transitioning to be a fake male and taking male hormones. The Biden administration is always on the lookout for any hate crime, real or imagined, that it can blame on us. But in the aftermath of the Nashville shooting, they ran to the microphones to say, we have no idea what happened here. Let's wait until the investigation is finished. That must have been a a first for them. Unbelievably, Joe Biden actually joked about it. When told that some conservative senators believed the shooting was a hate crime, Biden laughingly said, well, I probably don't then. Laughingly said. But almost a month after the shooting, we still don't know the killer's motive. The shooter is dead, so we can't interrogate her. But she left behind a manifesto and multiple diaries. There's a treasure trove of information that could tell us what motivated this woman to kill these children at a time when... Others are saying that conservatives and Christians want to commit genocide against other people. Multiple leaders at every level are demanding to see this information, but the FBI is refusing to release it. One local official said she was told that the manifesto is a blueprint for total destruction and would be astronomically dangerous if it were released. So we're supposed to believe the FBI fears that the Nashville trans shooter was some kind of evil super genius from the latest Marvel movie. Her plan seemed simple enough. Get guns, walk into a school and start shooting. It's not like we haven't seen this before. No, something else is going on here. It's totally reasonable to believe, and I do, again quoting Gary Bauer, that the motives of this shooter are seriously inconvenient for Joe Biden, the attorney general, the deep state, the liberal media and left wing political allies. This reminds me a lot of the FBI's infamous cover up of the mass assassination attempt by the crazed Bernie Sanders supporter. He came to Washington, D.C. with a hit list of Republican congressmen in his pocket and then opened fire on the House GOP baseball team as they were practicing for a charity game. The FBI initially said it couldn't determine a motive, then labeled the shooting a suicide by cop. 
Journalist Glenn Greenwald is trying to sue to force the release of the Trans Shooters Manifesto, but so far, at least two law firms have refused to take the case. Why? I join the growing call for the manifesto's immediate release and any information that points to the motive. It's important for the American people to know the truth. It's important for churches and Christians to know if they are in danger from the movement and the increasingly violent and unhinged group. Just days after this atrocity, another trans-Christian hater was arrested for plotting attacks on schools and churches. Thankfully, he was turned in by his own family. As noted last week, the House of Representatives voted along party lines to pass a bill protecting girls' sports from boys who claim to be girls. The American people overwhelmingly support this common-sense legislation, yet every House Democrat voted against the bill as something of a side note. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. And when we return, bless five everyday ways to love your neighbor and change the world. That and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. So glad to have you with us. Well, if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that people and relationships are important. I think all of us have come to that conclusion. Well, during the months of isolation, thousands of Americans were left feeling anxious and depressed and lonely, showing us that God created us to be in community with each other. Well, to make matters worse, the 2020 U.S. presidential election left us more divided than ever before. But in this broken world, we need to intentionally, those of us who are followers of Christ, invest in each other and serve our neighbor as Christ did. Well, 2021 must be the year to love each other well. Well, my next guest and his co-author, who happens to be his brother, uh, John Ferguson, um, has written a book that will help us in that regard. Well, Dave and John Ferguson, uh, brothers, church thought leaders and authors, want friendship to be easy. As pastors of Community Christian Church in the Chicago area, they've seen the opportunity for their congregation to invest in others around them as they become more isolated in society. Well, the book is simply titled, Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. Well, John and Dave provide a step-by-step guide that encourages Christians to love others, to share the good news of the gospel, and change the world. And it all starts with one easy saying, and that is, bless. Well, my guest is uh, John Ferguson. He is co-founding pastor of Community Christian Church in Chicago. He serves as one of its uh, lead teaching pastors and provides leadership in new ventures. He has also helped uh, co-launch New Thing and serves on the board of directors for Exponential Conference. He joins us to talk about the book he co-authored with his brother, Dave Ferguson. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Looking forward to it. This is such a timely book, given where we have been and where we're headed as we move away ever so slowly from uh, this pandemic that has forced us to isolate ourselves from one another. It's interesting to me as I walk through a grocery store, for example, that rather than look one another in the eye and smile, <laughs> uh, we tend to kind of move away from each other. We've been trained to to be repelled by the presence of others. This book is so timely because it helps us to consider what we're called to do as Christians. And you draw our attention in the introduction to Mark 12, verses 30 and 31, in which we're told that loving our neighbor as ourselves uh, eight times throughout Scripture and by Jesus himself um, is such a significant part of what it means to reflect the character of Christ out into the culture. Uh, thanks so much, Georgine. I think you're, you're absolutely right, uh, particularly in these times when you know, we are more divided. We seem to be more separated. People are suspicious of one another for a variety of reasons. 
uh, we need to follow exactly what you said, what Jesus said. That's love God and love others. It's the greatest commandment. He gave us two when we asked for one, but it's still all about loving God and loving others. And our hope is that this book really is almost a, a remedial course on what it means to be a good friend. Uh, yeah. mean, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners, right? Wouldn't that be great if we were known as simply good friends? And then over the course of time, that can give us the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and help them find their way back to God and Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of us, we assume that, well, Jesus had an easier time of it, or maybe the sinners in his day weren't as challenging as they are in our day. <laughs> some, somehow we excuse ourselves um, because we don't know quite how to approach what our heart really longs for, and that is to develop relationships with people who don't yet know Christ, to share the best news we've ever heard and have benefited by, but we just don't know where to start. Bless really provides us with a blueprint and how to begin that and to reflect what Jesus reflected in his ministry on earth. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're speaking my language for sure. It's interesting, um, in, in working on the book, Georgine, George Barna, we discovered, led a really interesting study, and George Barna probably knows more about church life in America than just about anybody else, where he did a study and asked friends and neighbors what they value mm. in a person with whom they would talk about spiritual matters to. So they basically talked to all of our friends out there that we would like to reach with the gospel. They wanted to find, they said this, they said they would like to see three qualities in someone that they would talk about spiritual matters to. Number one, they want someone who will listen without judgment. They want someone who will allow them to draw their own conclusions. And then they want someone who can speak confidently about their own story. That's all they want. You know, we think somehow it's our job to convince or coerce or cajole. It's our job to be friends, love people the way Jesus loved people. And then let's let God's spirit do the work of convicting and converting. Well, and I appreciate you make it very clear the role that you and I are called to play and the role that God through his Holy Spirit is called to play. We sometimes take on more responsibility than is given to us, and that makes a, a frightening prospect out of just engaging in uh, friendship and community with people who don't yet know Christ. Uh, yeah, I mean, I couldn't. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I, and Georgina, I don't know what your experience was growing up, but, you know, I and I think a lot of Christians probably feel this way, like this undue sort of kind of kind of pressure to do it a certain way. And mm -hmm. to, and, it, and it's all about a verbal witness. Now, I'm not saying that proclamation or verbal witness isn't important, but I think sometimes we get kind of the, the cart ahead of the horse, if you will. And if we will lay the groundwork, and I think these blessed practices do that, I think we'll find that we'll have an opportunity for a verbal witness and even a more powerful verbal witness than if we begin with the verbal witness. Yeah, and that is so much of the example that we see Jesus set for us. And let's talk about the five blessed practices because it's blessed period, L period, E period. F. What are the uh, blessed practices uh, that are everyday ways that you and I can share the love of Christ with our neighbor? And as you point out, change the world. Sure, Georgina, I can do that. I'll, I'll give you the five real quick. And then if you want, we can kind of dig in a little bit deeper on uh, one or two of them later yeah. on. But it begins with the letter B in bless, and it's begin with prayer. Now, I know that's a little bit of a stretch from an acronym standpoint, but it's begin with prayer. It gets better. Trust me. And keep <laughs> in mind, these are all things that Jesus did. So we didn't just make this up. OK, Jesus blessed people and he began with prayer. We see that over and over again in Scripture. Uh, the second one, then the L is for listen. And what we found is, and I think we all sort of intuitively know this, that, you know, listening is one of the most profound and meaningful gifts we can give someone to intentionally listen to them, their dreams, their hopes, their fears. So begin with prayer, listen. And then the third one is my favorite. It's eat. We share meals. 
you look at the life of Christ, he shared meals with people all the time. It was a great way for him to, to connect with others and, and let them know that he loved them. So we begin with prayer. We listen. We eat. The first S in blessed then is serve. I mean, Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Right, to serve. Right, yeah. So it's begin with prayer, listen, eat, serve. And then the final S in blessed then is story. And we're convinced that if we will take the time to, to pray for the people that we feel like God has put in our path, that we want to bless, that we want to share the gospel with, we will listen to them. We'll share meals with them, get to really know them. We'll then know how we can best serve them. And then finally, at some point, we'll probably have an opportunity to share our story and hear their story and then let the Holy Spirit do its work. And hopefully they'll come to know what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Mm. So what you're describing is a relationship that is built over time, not 15 minutes in which you have to spew out everything you know about the gospel and hope that they will fall to their knees and, <laughs> and repent. Wow, Georgina, if I didn't if I didn't know better, I, I I you sound like you have experience in some of those other methods. <laughs> I know I do. And, and they didn't work that well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think too, your as I mentioned earlier, your timing is impeccable. Given the fact that the uh, pandemic and the isolation that we've experienced, I think has given us a longing to be together again. And what a tremendous opportunity we have to reintroduce ourselves perhaps to our neighbors. Uh, and to begin a relationship with people that we may have been in contact with for a long period of time, but we now have a good excuse to to build a relationship on these principles that will lead ultimately to sharing what's most important and and deeply valued with the people that we learn to care about. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right on. Yep. I, and again, what's interesting is, and we could talk about this too, but what we found is some of these principles you could actually do during the pandemic, even though there mm-hmm. was social and mask wearing, but certainly coming out of it, I think where you're right, um, more than anything, I think we're finding is that people are longing for connection, you know, content. We've always been able to get content, right? I mean, that's available anywhere on the internet, all sorts of places, but connection, okay, Zoom and Skype are great. However, true connection, uh, true friendships, the kind that bless one another are, are invaluable. And I think we do have an opportunity in this space and time coming out of the pandemic, like maybe we haven't in, in years or decades uh, to really, you know, kind of, kind of put our best foot forward and show the the world what Jesus sort of looks like with with skin on, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And I mentioned to our listeners before our conversation that you have an appendix blessed during a pandemic. So there's some great um, ways that we can connect with people while we're on our way out of the pandemic. But we don't have to wait until things are completely clear. Now, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to continue my conversation with a co-author of uh, this important book, John Ferguson, along with his uh, brother, Dave, Bless Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with John Ferguson, who has written a very timely book simply titled Bless Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. I thought it was rather interesting that the first chapter uh, in the book is Why Does Sharing the Good News Feel So Bad? And you touched on this just a little bit with uh, some of the surveys that have been done to let us know what the, the world outside of the church is thinking and is looking for from us. But let's address that. Why does sharing the good news feel so bad? Is it because our approach is flawed? Oh, it's a great question, Georgine. I, I think with the best of intentions at times, we'd have to admit that our approach um, was, is, or has been uh, somewhat flawed. And, and I think, again, it goes back to this idea that many of us 
grew up with and, and continue to um, is continuing to be perpetuated in some circles, I think, that you know it is up to us to coerce or convince or cajole people, and we kind of take the Holy Spirit out of it. And when in reality, I think what, what we need to do is learn to really, what does it look like to bless people, to love people, and then look for the opportunity then to, to share a gospel witness with them. And, you know, when I was first trained in evangelism, you know, it was these two diagnostic questions. We'd knock on doors and we'd, we'd mm-hmm. you know, pummel people with these questions immediately. And I'm not saying at all that there wasn't some good done with that. There was some really good that came out of it, but I also think there was probably some harm. And I think it also left a lot of your average everyday Christ followers who really do want to help their neighbors and their loved ones get to know Jesus, understand the gospel. I think it kind of left them feeling like I'm never doing that. I can't possibly do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Whereas we can just kind of back up and say, okay, well, what did, what did Jesus do? He went about blessing the people in places that he came across every single day. And then if we give them some simple tools that really do reflect what Jesus did, I think we want people to walk away from this book saying, you know what? Maybe I, maybe I can help someone find their way back to God. I appreciate that the first um, blessed practice is to begin with prayer. I think that's so often left out. I'm pretty much on my own. I'm going to try to fashion this relationship in a way that works for me. We don't take the time to begin with prayer. And that's such an important element in blessing others as we're attempting to love them as we have been loved by Christ. Yes. And and I think you're right, Georgine, in that oftentimes we, you know, we say pray first, but really it's almost like, well, that's like your last resort. Our focus here is, yeah, begin with prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, when Jesus started his earthly ministry, uh, in Luke chapter six, verse 12, it says he went out on a mountain and he prayed over and over again. We find Jesus retreating to pray. And so I like to tell people, if you're not sure who God is calling you to bless, like Jesus, begin with prayer. Uh, one, one way that I try to practice this is uh, in my journaling. And I try to you know spend some time daily in prayer and quiet reflection and journaling. At the bottom of my journal, I have the letters B-L-E-S-S on the journal. And then below that, I have a list of names of people that I feel like are in my circle of influence that God is asking me to bless. And so now I'm not going to say do it every day, but most days I'm looking at that list and I'm praying for those people by name, asking God to give me opportunities to bless them. And I think it's important to note that by doing that, you're already blessing them. Like that actually Mm -hmm. counts. (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, Somebody challenged me one time with this thought. They said, you know, there are people that you come across every single day who have never not once in their lifetime had someone pray for them. And I don't mean, you know, stop them, you know, in the middle of the street, lay your hands on them and pray out loud. I just mean, you know, offer a simple word of prayer, even if they don't know that you're doing it. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. My mom and dad had been praying for me before I was born. And so we have an opportunity to really bless people, um, begin blessing them by simply praying for them. And I say, you know, if you don't know what to pray for, Think of it like the golden rule of prayer, you know, pray for others as you would have them pray for you. Mm-hmm. A great way to start. So, yeah, begin, begin with prayer. It's, it's, it's absolutely foundational. Uh, the second blessing uh, practice is to listen. And that sometimes can be hard for us because we're so anxious to share the good news because it's good news. We're not prepared to listen. And if we don't like what we're hearing, we may want to interrupt and interject or Talk a bit about how we can bless others by simply listening and honoring them by listening. Yeah. You know, again, I go back to the life of Jesus. If you think about it and and, and read through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, uh, asking questions and then listening was central to his life and teaching. 
He asked way more questions than he answered. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one researcher found that of the 183 different questions Jesus was asked, he answered only a handful. Most of the time, what would he do? Respond with even more questions of his own, <laughs> sometimes even to a point of frustration for some people, I think. But uh, the truth is, listening may be the kindest and most loving gift you can give somebody. Uh, you know, I was even thinking about this, you know, during the pandemic, you know, as long as you kept your distance, you could still talk to people when you're out and about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we underestimate the value of listening and just how desperate people are for a listening ear. I think we've all had those situations when you're talking to somebody and, you know, they are so dialed in you, they, they make you feel like you're the only person in the room. What a gift that is, because we've also been in those situations where you're talking to somebody and it's, it is so obvious they're either looking past you or they're already reciting in their mind what they're going to say next before you even get the words out of your mouth. Yeah. And just this whole idea of listening, it's so powerful. And it, it paves a, uh, a great path for us, I think, to, to share the gospel. You know, I appreciate you reminding us that Jesus didn't answer every question. Sometimes we are fearful of being asked something we don't have the answer to because we think we have to carry the conversation. And what you've described is a genuine interest in other people that relieves us of the burden of having to uh, to carry, you know, the whole relationship and the whole conversation. So that is relieving in and of itself uh, and, and valuing other people. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think if we could just... Uh, put ourselves in the, in the in the shoes of the other person, we all love to be listened to. And so why not just offer that gift that you enjoy experiencing to somebody else? Absolutely. Again, the book we're talking about, Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. Dave and John Ferguson are the authors. The next on the list is Eat. Now, that might be somewhat intimidating to some of our listeners as well. If you're used to hospitality, inviting someone into the home, or um, you know how to manage that, uh, that may seem like, oh, a great thing to do. But for others, that can be a little bit intimidating because we feel like we have to have it all together. Talk a bit about how we love our neighbors well um, and, and how eating together uh, can facilitate that. Absolutely. And again, you know, I, I go back to the life of Christ over and over again. We find Jesus, you know, with tax collectors, sinners doing what he's eating. And I think it's because he knew there's something special about sharing a meal that has a way of moving almost any relationship past acquaintance uh, towards friendship faster than almost anything we can do. I mean, how many of us have had that experience where, you're, you have an acquaintance and then either they invite you out to eat or over to your, over to their home, or you connect somewhere over a cup of coffee or dessert. And suddenly someone who you just sort of felt like you sort of knew as an acquaintance. Now it's your, your friends. And I think it's just something that happens over a meal. And it's, it's not surprising when you think about how central meals were Mm -hmm. to the life of Jesus. I mean, the, the, one of the things that he left for us to, to, to repeatedly do over and over again, what, 2,000 plus years later is to share a meal, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the, and the cup, right? To remember his death and resurrection. So sharing a meal is a powerful way to, to bless the people around you. And, and something you touched on, Georgine, if I could real quick. Yeah. It, what I think is important about these blessed practices, particularly this one on eating, is we're really not asking people to add anything to your already busy schedule. I think most of us eat, I don't know what, three meals a day, seven days a week, about 21 meals a a week. Some of us more, (laughs) some of us less, (laughs) maybe throw in a dessert or two. Uh, What I would challenge people to, and we have tools in each one of the chapters of the book that kind of help you walk through this, 
is instead of eating those by yourself, just look for maybe two opportunities throughout the course of your week, two of those 21 to include somebody else. And don't, you know, create this elaborate dinner, you know, meal that you have to prepare, go out to eat or just do something really simple, share a salad. It, it, it's really just about being together and sharing that meal rather than by yourself, you know, do it with somebody else. And it's a great way uh, to bless them. Yeah, it really is. It's so meaningful to be invited into someone's either home or circle to just share a meal. It's it's such an intimate uh, opportunity to get to know one another a bit better. Now, we're just about out of time in this segment. Can you give us a few more minutes if I take this break? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Again, we're talking with uh, John Ferguson. He's the co-author, along with his brother, Dave, both in ministry. The book is titled, Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. And I have to tell you, it is so practical. I could do this. I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. If you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, I'm continuing my conversation with John Ferguson. Uh, the title of the book that he and his uh, brother Dave have authored is Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. You know, during this period of pandemic, we've had a couple of new neighbors move into our neighborhood. And so much time has passed. I'm a little embarrassed that I haven't done what a, a good already in the neighborhood person should do, and especially a follower of Christ. I haven't gone over and introduced myself. I haven't brought a, you know, a cake or something. I haven't done any. This book has inspired me to say, you know, we're in a season right now where it's very comfortable to begin something that maybe should have begun months ago, but to begin something that could uh, develop into a, a wonderful relationship and friendship and an opportunity to extend the love of Christ and maybe even share the gospel. So this book is is very timely and very practical. We haven't really talked about the structure of it, but you'll find that it's very practical in, in answering the question, is this something I could do? And the answer is, and I can say with confidence having the book, yeah, any one of us can do this and make a real impact in our in our neighborhood and with our neighbors to love them well and to change the world. Um, now, we were talking about the, the um, practices, the uh, blessed practices that allow us to do that. Let's talk about the next one, which is serve. Um, we have tremendous opportunities to bless one another in this season. How do you suggest that we serve our neighbors in an, our effort to love them well? Yeah, well, a good question. You know, I, I think... Uh, the order of these, if I could just back up a little bit, yeah. is important. Too. So you begin with prayer, you listen, you eat, and then you serve. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And I think he modeled for us, too, that if you will sort of follow these steps, that you will then discover how you can best serve the person or people that God is asking you to bless. Because, you know, praying, listening, and eating together helps you get to know that person. And it really ensures that the serving is about the person being served and not the person doing the serving. Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of reminds me of um, the love languages. Most of us are probably familiar with uh, Gary Chapman's book, where yes. the important thing is to learn um, the other person's love language and love them the way they need to be loved, when our tendency is to love people the way we want to be loved. <laughs> and I think it applies here. It's important to understand uh, you know, how your neighbor, how that person you're wanting to bless um, needs to be served and serve them in that way and not in a way that you necessarily want to. Uh, I, if I could, too, you know, you mentioned your neighbor. It's interesting. Um, an example where I, I think I might have got it right this one time. We had some new neighbors moving across the street. We live on the north side of Chicago. And my wife had mentioned that she uh, introduced herself to them and found out that the gentleman works for the Red Cross and that he's working super long hours 
because he was a part of the team that came to Chicago to help increase the number of vaccinations that were available for the um, for the COVID, uh, you know, the pandemic. And uh, it's like the next day I was at the bakery and there's this bakery has this incredible bread that we love to buy. It's uh, uh, what kind of bread is sunflower seed bread. Strange, but very, very good. And so I, I go into the bakery and I'm looking at the shelf and I notice there's two loaves of bread and there's just something in me. I'd like to think it was the spirit of God saying, you know, buy both loaves. You're going to give one of those to somebody. I didn't know who I was going to give it to at that moment. But I went ahead and bought both because I figured, hey, you know, <laughs> if I don't give it to somebody, we've got two loaves of really good bread. And uh, on my way home, though, I was praying about it and kind of asking God, well, you know, who should I? And that neighbor came to mind working at the Red Cross overtime hours. Why don't I just walk over there and say, you know, what? my wife told me you're working a lot of hours. I just want to say thank you for your service, you know, helping out our city via the Red Cross with these vaccinations. I was at the bakery. I thought of you. I want you to have this loaf of bread. Hope you like it as much as I do. Not a big deal. Took me maybe 10 minutes and an extra $5 for the loaf of bread. You know, I don't know where that's going to go. But I think it was a neat way to almost combine the eat and the serve. Yeah, <laughs> I was serving yeah. them by giving them um, something to eat. And, and, and that's how it works. Sometimes, you know, it's about the people that are on your list that you're asking God to help you know how to bless them. And sometimes it's just being sensitive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit for those moments when you have a chance to bless somebody impromptu. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. The last in the um, blessed practices is um, is a story where you have the opportunity to share your story. I think sometimes there's such a sense of urgency. We want to kind of blurt it out <laughs> prematurely um, because it's it's important to us. It's, uh, you know, our walk with Christ and experiencing and knowing his love has been such a tremendous blessing in our life. We want to share that with others. Uh, talk a bit about the 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 fifth in the practice of story, when we share ours, how we go about it, the timing and all of that, and address that sense of urgency that we may have that sabotages our relationship that we're building. Right. I think that's a, that's a really great point you make there, that the urgency is good. That's what, that's what kind of drives us or prompts us to want to share the love of Jesus with our neighbors. Uh, but I think that sadly, many people have felt like maybe they're being like sold. Uh, it's like a sales pitch rather than um, coming across as a, uh, a real genuine sort of authentic reflection of the life change that you've experienced and what you know they could experience in a relationship with Christ. And so that's why, again, I think it's important for us to begin with prayer. You know, listen, just listen and, and don't talk. Mm-hmm. Christians are so known for talking. We need to be known for listening. Mm-hmm. Eat, share meals, look for ways to serve. And then finally, when people are ready to listen, I think that's when we share the story. I think that's how Jesus did it too. I mean, like when Doubting Thomas came to him asking, okay, Jesus, how can we know the way? And then Jesus said, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, a relationship with me. And so I think when you befriend and bless people, over time, they will feel relationally safe and want to know your story. Then you can tell them how the love of Jesus you know, his life, death, and resurrection, how that has changed your life. And even then, keep it simple. You know, just share with them. We have this in the book, three steps. Your life before you chose to follow Jesus. You know, what was it like? How you chose to follow him. What were the circumstances around that? And then finally, your life since following Jesus. What difference has it made? And I think in that third part, it's important to be honest, too. Share share the good stuff and share the challenging stuff. The ways that, you know, God has really come through for you in, in remarkable, if not miraculous ways, but also share those places where you're still kind of struggling or working yeah. through it and trying to figure life out like most people. I think people really, really appreciate that authenticity. 
Yeah, absolutely. You don't seem like an opportunist. You never read in Scripture where Jesus seemed like an opportunist. I'm going here, uh, just I'm just waiting for my moment. And I'm going to you know jump on. He was genuinely concerned and interested in people. He was genuine in his approach. And I think that first practice of beginning with prayer and the last practice, which is sharing your story, are so inexorably linked that if you're doing the first then you're not going to blow the, the last because your timing is going to be guided uh, not just by your sense of, okay, here's my moment. It's going to be guided by the Holy Spirit who says their heart is open, um, and this is a moment for you to share just this much of your story. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, it's um, it's interesting. I had When I moved to the north side of Chicago a number of years ago, I found out that a friend of mine from high school lived like two or three blocks away. And so um, we started getting together talking a little bit, started praying for him. I felt like I was trying to listen. We shared some meals. I found out the best way to serve him really was to simply listen to him because he was going through some really difficult times relationally, vocationally, et cetera. Uh, That's probably been over the course of about seven or eight years. And has he ever really, I mean, I've shared my story with him. So he knows, you know, the difference that Jesus has made in my life. And just recently, he actually started going to an alpha small group with me. But he has Excellent. yet to really commit his life to Jesus. That's like seven or eight years. And, and you know what? That's where I'm saying, God, yeah, I want him to. But I think that's, you know, that's kind of where I got to let the Holy Spirit take over and I'll do what I can and let God take it from there. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Now, where do we begin? I know as I'm sitting here, uh, I'm broadcasting from home today. I'm thinking about specific neighbors. Where do I begin in this effort to bless um, my neighbors and to love them well, as uh, the book suggests. How do I begin, first of all, by identifying who God is calling me to to reach out to? Well, I think it's exactly what you're saying there. I think there's a couple different ways. One would be to go ahead and think about those people that are in your circle of influence. And it, you know, in some situations for some people, it's, it's about proximity. It's about geography. Mm-hmm. It's those people that live next door to you across the street in your neighborhood. It could be, you know, especially as, you know, workplaces begin to move back to the office or, on site, wherever that might be, it could be that person that you're sitting next to, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week that God has put in, in your path that you could begin to think about how to bless. And and I would encourage you, like I know a lot of people have that are, you know, putting these practices into play is make that list, make that a part of your regular um, journaling time and begin praying for, for those people. And then if you if you have a circle of other Christ following friends, I think another great way to do this is make that a part of your conversation when you're getting together. If you're part of a, a small group Bible study or discussion group of some kind, when you're together, ask each other, okay, who are you blessing this week? And if you show up and your way of blessing that week was by praying, well, good, that counts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't say I only prayed. Say, no, I prayed. I prayed for you know two or three different people this week. And then I would also say, um, like I mentioned earlier, Make that kind of an ongoing prayer throughout the course of your day. God, help me to know who I can bless today and look for those sort of impromptu moments that you might not expect where God gives you an unexpected opportunity to bless somebody. Yeah, and he will certainly honor that. Well, there's so much more that could be said about the uh, about the book. One of the things that you suggest is that when we uh, purpose in our hearts that we are going to to bless our neighbors, and we've identified uh, who those people are, that we um, we are held accountable by others. We let other people know, a couple of friends uh, know that can help keep us accountable, so that we we do move forward and experience uh, the joy of blessing others as we extend uh, love and joy to them uh, through this commitment. Yeah, I, I think doing this in community is a great way to go. I mean, not to 
reinforce <laughs> the opportunities that we have in the book, but we do have resources available. If anybody wants access to that, like small group guides, mm-hmm. uh, videos that kind of help them train people in this, they can find that at bless-book.org. We'd be happy to help in any way we can. Excellent. Well, again, the title of the book is Bless. Uh, five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. I know it's going to certainly influence my practice here in this area. Uh, John Ferguson, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to talk with us about it. Oh, completely my pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It was really fun. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Earth Day was on Saturday. And what's it really all about? Well, Wikipedia asks, what are the beliefs of Earth Day? And they write uh, their own uh, answer. Uh, This mission is founded on the premise that all people, regardless of race, gender, income or geography, have a moral right to a healthy, sustainable environment. The Earth Day Network pursues this mission through education, public policy and activism campaigns. But many take Earth Day much further and far more seriously to some, perhaps many It is a deeply held religious holiday. Some thoughts on Earth Day. There's more behind what has been designated as Earth Day than planting trees, reducing pollution, conserving natural resources, and picking up plastic bottles and straws. Earth Day, too many, is celebrating, as they claim over 1 billion people do, over two in over 200 countries around the world, to help make our universal domain a little greener. The color of olive oil tree, uh, green, that is. Uh, Loving on Mother Earth is mandatory today, but also this day brings with it hopes that awareness from this celebration will spill over into our life cycle footprint, they say. Global leaders say our Earth is known in Greek mythology as Gaia. The Greeks were considering Earth acknowledgement years before we started our Earth Day affair. And I'm quoting, well, they explain the first Greek god was actually a goddess. She was Gaia or Mother Earth who created herself out of the primordial chaos From her fertile womb, all life sprang, and unto Mother Earth, all living things must return after their allotted span of life is over, end quote. In other words, Mother Nature created herself, and she was the whole Earth in her hands, including you and me, brother and sister. Well, that's why we must worship rather than have dominion over the Earth and in the minds of so-called enlightenment. Many churches designate Sunday as Earth Sunday. Wikipedia explains that Earth Day Sunday is a semi-religious holiday that some Christian churches in the United States celebrate. I'm always saddened at how many churches take the knee before Gaia on Earth Day, claiming to be uh, as important as Easter. Well, Gaia as Mother Nature personifies the entire ecosystem of planet Earth, they believe. And Mother Nature is always working to achieve and maintain harmony, wholeness and balance within the environment. Mother Nature heals, nurtures, and supports all life on this planet, and ultimately, all life and health depend on her. In time, nature heals all ills, end quote. Well, Gaia's followers teach that the way of Mother Gaia is the more submissive yet yin way to, of healing. All you need to do is regain, uh, to regain your health is to return to the bosom of Mother Nature and live in accordance with her laws. Mother Nature is a healing goddess, again, end quote. The disciples say through the global consciousness of Mother Gaia, all living things on the planet from their most primal instincts are constantly interacting with their environment to ensure the harmony, balance and continuity of life. Live in balance with Mother Nature and health and healing are yours, but violate her laws and get out of balance and you may pay the price in way of pain and disease. Well, that's a 
summation of the belief system. These beliefs are those of New Age, Eastern mysticism, pantheism rolled up into one. Well, Paul in the book of Romans described this as worshiping the created rather than the creator. More than 30 years ago, when Al Gore was launching his lucrative global warming career, later to be called climate change, in an attempt to accommodate the facts at the U.N., Sponsored Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, a contingent from the mainline United Church of Christ held a demonstration that opened with the traditional hymn, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord, substituting Earth for Lord. Well, the Earth Day religionists have been seduced to replace God with the Earth as the center of adoration. The Genesis account of creation is clear in the central point that environmentalists find so scandalous. The earth was a gift from God for our use. After God created man and woman in his image, he blessed them with the words, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the seas, the birds of the air and the living things that move on this earth. That's Genesis 1:28. This is the first charge long before the fall that was given to human beings directly by God. His covenant with Adam required him to exercise dominion over the earth. Ken Ham says this, for instance, at some Earth Day celebrations, you will find new age crystals for people to channel through and material um, can be found on how to worship Mother Earth. For many people, this day is is really a religious service for the new age movement, and it's often based on evolutionary thinking. And while we may be responsible for caring for the Earth, and we are, we're not to worship it, but to use it for man's good and for God's glory. The founder of Earth Day, Gaylord Nelson, believed the fate of the living planet is the most important issue facing mankind. In reality, biblically, the most important issue facing mankind is that everybody needs to recognize their sin and need for salvation in Jesus Christ. Also, the fate of the planet is ultimately not in the hands of mankind. While we are responsible for earth care, we are not to control the earth or in control of the earth. It belongs to the Creator. Psalm 24, 1, and we are his stewards. We care for creation, which um, was once very good, Genesis 1, 31, but now suffers from the curse of sin, Genesis 3. Well, Kinham also notes how he looks at the entire green movement. As a biblical creationist, let me illustrate how I would deal with a specific issue like climate change, which can serve as a useful example of how we should use biblical principles when we approach any issue associated with Earth Day. I argue that the Earth's climate has gone through a few major periods of change, but in every case, humans did not produce the change. Ever since the flood of Noah's time, about 4,000 years ago, people have seen an unsettled Earth in its um, sin-cursed state. Many smaller climate changes have occurred and continue to occur, perhaps in cycles. Whether humans have contributed significantly in a detrimental way is just not suggested by the evidence we have at hand. Of course, if mankind's impact on the climate is small, this does not mean that we should not look after the environment. To the contrary, we need to do our best, the best we can, to use the environment for man's good and God's glory, as good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. But good stewardship requires us to avoid rash decisions based on inconclusive evidence. And it is uh, well said. We are stewards of the earth, which belongs ultimately to him. But we also live in an earth in which... Uh, Sin has had a major impact. It's described as the earth groaning for the sons of God to be revealed at some point. I'm looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth when the things that have gone on in this earth, the things that we have done to the earth will be wiped away and God will restore all things to a degree that it will be uh, far greater than the original 
creation. All of that to say we are to be stewards of the earth, but we are not to worship the earth, nor are we to worship Mother Earth or Gaia, as many in the movement do. Be informed, be men and women of faith, be prayerful and be good stewards in every area. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.